You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we bring you part two of our conversation and debate with Ben Burgess about Marxist theory of exploitation and whether one can jettison a theory of value and still preserve the key aspects of a theory of exploitation. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we will begin that interview with Ben Burgess. But first, as we do in every episode, a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is Wednesday, June 23rd, and we're going to be talking about a piece in Current Affairs by Nathan Robinson called How to End Up Serving the Right. It is a exploration of the downward political trajectory of Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald as they've spiraled further into becoming uh, sort of puppets of right-wing talking points. So Andrew, we've talked about Greenwald and Taibbi, or we've talked about Greenwald at least before, and his strong turn to the right. Were there new things in this piece, that new things you got out of this piece by Robinson? Um, no, I, I, I was very happy to see the piece because Robinson, he's a socialist. He is not like affiliated as strongly as we are with the, the people on the left who, you know, reject the Greenwald stuff and the whole anti-neoliberal line. He's kind of, you know, traditionally been somewhere in the middle. And to come out strongly against them, I think is good. And it kind of signals that, my God, you know, everybody realizes that those people have crossed to the other side. What's hard for me to understand, I think it's hard for you to understand, is like what took you so long? But I mean, for instance, Robinson says, one of the first signs I had that something distinctly odd was happening to him, Greenwald, came during an exchange we had about the killing of a young black man by a police officer. This was in September of 2020. It took, it took him a while to figure out what was going on with Greenwald. Yeah, I mean, did it, did it really take you till, till 2020, to, uh, September of 2020, to figure out what was wrong with Greenwald? I don't think that that's what he means. I mean, in terms of serving the right, uh, I was just, you know, doing some um, history to see if I, you know, if I'd gotten things wrong. And there was a piece in Vox from September 15, 2016, Jeff Stein, entitled, Why Glenn Greenwald Relentlessly Attacks Hillary Clinton, Even If It Helps Donald Trump. I mean, this was already relentless, and it was already a thing. It was already, you know, a topic for a whole longish article way back then, you know, in the collusion with uh, Assange, and Assange's collusion with uh, the Putin government, and I mean, all, all of this was, was out there and known way, way long time ago. Well, one, one of the things I thought was interesting about the Robinson piece was that he did, does a lot of counter-arguing or debunking this narrative that we get from people like Greenwald and Taibbi that one of the main enemies uh, that the left needs to fight or free thinkers need to fight is this woke authoritarianism, cancel culture, this like um, sense that 
there's like mass hysteria and repression going on in the name of Me Too and Black Lives Matter and, and such. You know, and we've talked about the anti-neoliberal sentiments that have given rise to some of these like red-brown politics um, amongst people like Tybee and Greenwald, but we haven't dealt as much with the, to use the term, anti-woke sentiments. So I thought that might be interesting for us to delve into a little bit. You know, one of the things he does that's, I thought, useful is just to say, look, this characterization of woke authoritarianism throws a lot of different things into the same uh, label and is really not that accurate or useful because you're dealing with maybe some some overly zealous Twitterati, but you're also, you know, lumping in with that like very legitimate and like anti-racist and anti-sexist uh, movements that are like a major force for social change in our country. And by grouping all that together, you, you make like very reactionary arguments. I think that was like one of Robinson's main points is that Taibbi and, and Greenwald are basically becoming, whether they know it or not, becoming mouthpieces for, for the far right because they're just adopting the same kind of set of talking points. And, and yeah, I mean, I mean, this is this is just a grab bag of every resentment and every complaint in the culture wars. He's absolutely right about that. There's there's no commonality to to anything that they're talking about. I mean, you know, woke culture. I mean, the the the, the, the people who are in charge of Dr. Seuss's estate decide not to publish books with the you know racist cartoons and that's like woke culture, and or woke politics. Whatever it is, it's like. So what? You're going to blame that on what? BLM? You're going to blame that on the left? I mean, it, the, the whole thing is nuts if you try to, like, deconstruct it factually. N none of the stuff coming from the right is meant to be factual. It, it's identitarian politics or identity politics. It, it's, it's all about, you know, white, rural, male, uh, Christian identity. Even the term woke, I mean, using the term woke disparagingly is because it's a, a black term. It, using it disparagingly is, is, is racist. He, he also, you know, talks a little bit about the seductiveness of this right-wing form of argument in which things really can, at first glance, sound like a very factual, politically neutral observation, but in fact are, like, really uh, decontextualized. I mean, it, you were brought up earlier Greenwald's reaction to this police shooting, where Greenwald basically said that people were uh, throwing out due process by condemning the police officers before they had a chance to be tried, right? Yeah, the ACLU or somebody at the ACLU tweeted that the, the person was murdered by the cops. And Greenwald got all critical of the ACLU saying, look, they were supposed to be for rule of law and due process, and they're trying these people um, in, in, in the court of public opinion. Robinson rightly points out that, look, these things are necessary when there is a complete breakdown of the rule of law when it comes to police officers, and they're not ever held accountable to people they, for people they kill. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what kind of due process did this dead person get? Right. So he's saying, he's saying, you know, you care about due process and, and rights. What, what about the rights of the victim of the cops? Keeping in mind, among other things, that the cops are a governmental institution. What about the rights of individuals against the government? You know, especially because the cops can murder people and doesn't get called murder because they're allowed to do it. 
And that's such a right-wing type of argument where at first glance seems logical. Oh, they, they're they not in favor of due process, but it, it completely decontextualizes the entire politics of policing in the country. Greenwald, is, this is his specialty, is decontextualizing. Yeah. You know, he, he finds some thing that's not 100% perfectly accurate and he pulls on it and pulls on it and pulls on it and makes that the issue so that you forget about what the real issue is I mean and Robinson has a, an, an example of of that you know there's millions of Greenwald examples of that he, he did that always with regard to the collusion issue Greenwald knows he's doing this right everybody knows that Greenwald is doing this Okay, everybody knows that the right wing is just spinning these stories to whip up the grievances of its base, you know, the Trumpite base, and that they don't care about factual accuracy. And what it looks like to me is he's just a master, and he's long been a master of nitpicking in a very biased, one-sided way. He hates he hates the liberals, he hates the democratic establishment, he hates the mainstream media, and everything he does is to hurt them and to help their enemies. Well, that's all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, our conversation with Ben Burgess. So this is part two of our conversation with Ben Burgess about Marxist theory of exploitation and whether or not, as Ben claims, that theory does not require a theory of value to be valid. We're going to be talking a lot in this interview about a paper from several decades ago by G.A. Cohen entitled The Labor Theory of Value and the Concept of Exploitation. If you didn't catch part one of our interview, you should probably go to listen to that first and then come back. Ben Burgess is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. He has a PhD in philosophy from the University of Miami. His academic specialization has to do with logical paradoxes about self-reference, but these days he spends most of his time exposing the logical fallacies of right-wing reactionaries and technocratic centrists and arguing for democratic socialism. He writes a column for Jacobin and hosts a podcast and YouTube show called Give Them an Argument. So welcome again to the podcast, Ben. Welcome, Ben. Yeah, thanks, guys. So, the worker is the only person who creates it, and by it, he means the product. So, the worker is the only person who creates the product, and thus the only person who has a right to it, and by extension, a right to its value. That's the way that um, Ben phrases the argument in um, a piece he wrote on Medium. He credits that argument to G.A. Cohen, and we want to talk about that argument now. I, I think that what Ben actually wants to do is give a short summary of the gist of Cohen's argument. But my problem with that short version is it runs afoul of so-called Hume's Law, which I know Ben endorses because he has a big a chunk of his book about this. Hume, uh, David Hume, the, the Scottish philosopher from way back, said you can't derive an ought from an is. You can't, cannot derive normative conclusions from a positive statement, a statement of fact. It seems to me that that's exactly what's going on. The worker is the only person who creates the product, factual statement, and thus the only person who has a right to it. That's a normative conclusion. Certainly, I, I think you're right that, as stated, taken literally, you know, that, that the thus 
doesn't follow from the part before it. But I, I think, you know, it's, it's an anthememe. It's, you know, it's an argument where not all of the, you know, the assumptions are explicitly stated, which I think is pretty common uh, for this kind of thing. You know, technically speaking, this, the second part doesn't follow from the first part by itself. You know, that's because, as, as is very often the case when we're making arguments like that, you know, there's an appeal to implicit, you know, normative premises. Hume's point isn't that factual premises do no work whatsoever in securing normative conclusions it's just that factual premises by themselves can't get us to normative conclusions so in in this case i mean i agree you know you have to do more work to figure out whether given that uh, workers are the only humans that would have rights who are involved in the uh, the generation of, uh, of products that you know that gives the workers a right to the uh, the product of uh, of their labor so i take it we're in agreement that your real argument is the co- Plain yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's uh, yeah. I'm, okay. Yes, let's get into Cohen and the plain argument. I mean, it's somewhat of a better argument than the, the stripped-down two-line version that had been uh, put out there. But I think it's a terrible argument, Cohen's plain argument. And I, I want to say, Cohen nowhere in that essay endorses the plain argument. And as I read it, he doesn't think much of it. He, he ends his essay by saying, it does not follow that the plain argument suitably expanded is a good argument. Having disposed of blah, 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 I hope to provide an evaluation of the plain argument elsewhere. I've tried to track down his evaluation elsewhere. I never found it. But I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty clear to me he was questioning how good the argument was. So, I mean, what, what I think he was doing is saying, this is how your, you know, generic garden variety Marxist actually thinks when they're endorsing what they think of as Marxist theory. And they're not really endorsing Marxist theory. The plain Marxist, you know, kind of thinks this way. And so he was putting out, I think, what he thought was the, 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 the underlying thinking of garden variety Marxism, you know, or generic Marxism. But the, the, the argue, I, I think the argument is, 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 is a very bad argument. I mean, one issue is that it equivocates. Cohen begins, the laborer is the only person who creates the product, that which has value. That's fine because he made it true by definition because uh, any, anybody who creates the product in whatever sense of creates the product you want, he calls a laborer. So it becomes true by definition. He says that. That's fine. But then he moves to, the laborer receives less value than the value of what he creates. And that's, I think, extremely problematic because the laborer is the only person who creates, you know, kind of by definition here. But that does not mean that the entire product is only the creation of the worker's labor. Okay? There are, besides the worker's labor, there are, in terms of physical production, a lot of other things that are involved in the creation of the product. Machines create the product. Electricity creates the product. Paper clips. All of those things are involved in the production, or you could call it creation of the product. So yes, the worker is the only person, but worker and you know raw materials and, and so forth and so on, all of those things are involved in the creation of the product. I don't think this is a small matter when we get to the economic debates that are conducted on this basis about uh, the suppliers of various inputs. Are they getting the contribution of their inputs back? 
what neoclassical economists call uh, the value of the mar marginal product of uh, their inputs. The neoclassical economists say uh, if we had perfect competition, then in a state of general equilibrium, the supplier of each productive input, including the supplier of labor, you know, the worker, they would all receive payments equal to the value of the marginal product of their input. None of them would receive the whole product, not the supplier of labor, not the supplier of paper clips, not the supplier of machines, but added up all together, all of their payments correlated to the contributions of those inputs, the sum of all of those uh, payments would exhaust the, the value of the product, so there would not be any exploitation, according to neoclassical theory. And I don't think that the, the plain argument can, can deal with that because it basically is a trick to move from the worker being the only person who creates to the worker's labor being the only thing that creates. The first thing is true, the, the laborer is the only person who creates, but the creation of the product is not due purely and exclusively to the worker's labor. There are other inputs involved. Yeah, so I, I guess I, I just want to say on the first part of that about Cohen's tentativeness, uh, I, I think that this might just be, I think a lot of, of analytic philosophy papers, you know, kind of feel like that at the end, uh, where especially when, when people are making major claims within papers, there's, there's a certain kind of style of philosophy where I think that that's kind of level of tentativeness that I, I know would read strangely in other contexts is, uh, you know, is fairly common. I think I would read that part a uh, a little bit differently but on the on the argument itself i don't agree that there is equivocation there because as far as like the the more important point you know about the argument from neoclassical economics i've always thought that the best response to this was from it's the early chapters of david schweikart's book uh, after capitalism where he he talks about people who will frame this argument in terms of land uh, labor and capital uh and he, and i think it's 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 particularly sort of sharply put you know what do you think to the land question because it's like well well wait a second what does that mean to uh to give the uh the full sort of marginal contribution of the land back i mean are we uh you know are we burning a sacrifice to the god of land here well no of course what you're doing is is you're um compensating the uh owner of the land but but that's a very different thing saying that the land is making this contribution uh, is a very different thing from uh, from saying uh, that the uh, that the owner of the land is somehow making some sort of contribution to the the generation of that uh, that value. And the same point even applies for uh, industrial machinery. That this is Richard Wolff's formulation about how you know yes, sure the uh, the the worker didn't build the uh, the factory, but uh, neither typically did the owner. Uh, that the you know, the owner is a middleman between a group of workers who, uh, who who built the factory and a group of workers who are going to work there. And the two groups of workers, uh, you know, collectively are making all of the contributions uh, made by human beings other than any that a capitalist might happen to make if they're not hiring somebody to make it either in a managerial or a menial capacity, which for you know, reasons we went over, I, I think is, you know, beside the point. So I, I don't agree that there's uh, there's there's an equivocation here. The, the, the issue is not not do these other people create okay but by definition they don't create 
Okay, we we can argue. Okay, but I could I could stipulate labor is the only person who creates, and the supplier of uh, paper clips does not. The supplier of machines does not. The supplier of electricity does not. Okay, but still the argument, the conclusion does not go through once you recognize that the worker is not the only creator. That there are these other inputs, machines, electricity, and so forth. The labor is the only person who creates. The labor receives less value than the value of what he he creates, which is to say, the supplier of labor receives less value than the whole. The supplier of machines receives less value than the whole. The supplier of electricity receives less value than the whole. The supplier of paper clips receives less value than the whole, and therefore, the labor is exploited by the capitalist. The supplier of machinery is exploited by the capitalist. The supplier of paper clips is exploited by the capitalist. The, the, the conclusion just does, does not go through. So first of all, I think the conclusion does go through. I don't think there's an equivocation here. I think we can paraphrase uh, so that that line uh, 18, the laborer receives less value than the value of what he creates. We can paraphrase it to match the phrasing as the uh, laborer receives less value than the value of what uh, the laborer is the only person that creates, and it doesn't impact the argument in any way. So I don't think there's an equivocation there. I, I think there is an equivocation when you start talking about the supplier. Who is the supplier of the paper clips? Are we talking about the owner of the paperclip company, or are we talking about the workers who created the paper clips? That difference is going to matter an awful lot. The problem is this is not in the plain argument. Once you pack a certain moral theory, you know, in, in, into the premises that proceed, then of course you, you can you can get the conclusion. Well, but, but it's not there in the it's not there in the plain argument. Okay. Well, I think that the if you want to say that there's some equivocation here that wrecks the argument, I think that you have to say you know, why it is that, you know, the argument would seem any less plausible or different, you know, if we rephrased 18 to the laborer receives less value than the value of what he is the only person who creates, which I, I think, yes, I mean, Cohen slips and he uses different phrasing in the two premises, but I don't think anything hangs on that. Well, because the, the, the problem is to say he creates, it makes it seem like he alone creates it and nothing else creates it. And the moment you say he receives less value than the value of what he is the only person who creates, whereas there are other things that also create, at that moment, the fact that the worker doesn't get the whole product, nothing follows from that. Because you have to ask about the return to the people who supply the, the, other, the other factors that are involved in the creation. You have to, at that point, say, well, there's all these different things involved. None of them get the whole. And so, you know, the worker doesn't get the whole. The, the suppliers of the other things, oh, I can deal with that if we need to. But, they, but what they does they the don't supplier get the of the other things mean? Are you talking about other workers or are you talking about nature? If you're talking about nature, there's no being... I'm, talk I'm talking about those who own paper clips, those who own electricity, just like the, the worker owns the labor power yes but the but like the but I, I think that just pushes back the question because uh the question about the owner of the paper clips well if plain argument goes through then the uh, then the owner of uh the paper clip concern is you know that they're um 
that you know again that uh, that they are a middleman between a group of workers who are manufacturing paper clips and a another group of workers who are using those paper clips and you know in use of uh, of, of of something else. So I think that if you uh, that if you like for the purposes of talking about the labor, you're talking about all of the laborers, the ones at the paperclip factory, the ones at the electricity plant, and also the ones at the factory. The question is, do all of those workers put together have at least a at first blush, all else being equal, uh, right to what they put together are the only people who create? We can talk about rights, but we were going to talk about exploitation, and I think Cohen wants to deduce a conclusion concerning exploitation. Yeah. And, I mean, the whole idea is you would want to say exploitation, therefore it's not right. You, You can beg the question by saying it's not right, Therefore, it's exploitation. Therefore, it's not right. No, I, mean, I, I, I don't think Cohen is saying it's exploitation. Therefore, is not right. I think that he's saying what it means to say that it's exploitation is that you're being unjustly deprived of something that you create. That's what exploitation means. I don't think there's anywhere in this essay where he even hints at thinking that it's exploitation rather than it's not right. It's rather that what we mean by saying that, that it's exploitation, that our use of the word exploitation to describe it is, as we agreed earlier, a normative claim in itself. Uh, yes. This brings me to my next problem with the plain argument, which is that at a certain point implicitly, he moves from the original definition of exploitation that he provides in the paper, which I find a little bit rough but acceptable, to a move, uh, he moves from that to a definition of exploitation wherein, um, only creation of the product counts as a contribution. Okay, what Cohen says originally is under certain conditions it is unjust exploitation to obtain something from someone without giving him anything in return. Okay, and the fact of the matter is one can say that the worker is the only person who creates the product and the, the totality of all the workers, you could say, create all of the products, but they're not the only people who contribute to the production process. And this middleman argument does not work because there are things that capitalists do that are not just middleman, middleman activities. First of all, capitalists take risks. They put their funds out there you know, or they put their resources, physical resources out there instead of, you know, consuming them right now. And they take a risk that they, you know, they something gets produced, there's no market for it, they can lose their shirt. So there's a risk there. So they take a risk. Uh, and then also you've got the investors, like financial investors and so forth, they are abstaining from immediate consumption. Okay, so they are doing something to uh, enable the product to be created even if they're not the direct creators. So when you think of it in this sense, that it's not the case that exploitation is just a matter of creation, the question becomes, are you obtaining anything from, are the capitalists, let's say the producing capitalists, are they obtaining anything from the lender of funds? Yes, okay. Are they getting anything from that person in return? right well the, the the point is what is the investor of funds getting if they don't get anything in return then according to this definition de- definition of exploitation they're being exploited 
the plain argument shuts that all down by turning all of the various contributions to production, reducing it all to who creates versus who doesn't create, rather than the more general sense of who is making a contribution and are they being compensated for that contribution. Okay, that that is, I think, the issue. And um, so I think that there's a slippage there between contributing to production and create direct creation. Do you think there's a way for this plain argument to deal with this question of factors of production? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I think that... Other than to sort of like just sort of create a, a moral, I don't know, what do you call it in philosophy, but like a moral imperative or something that only the people that make the product have a right to it? I mean, is there... And it's not just factors of production. It's people involved in auxiliary things that make possible the production. You know, and it doesn't have to be private property. The government creates the environment in which production can be can take place, the legal environment and so forth. So you could say the government is the only provider of uh, security and the legal system, so the government is entitled to confiscate everything. That's the, the, the logic of this argument well, tells I, us that. I, well, no, it's definitely not the logic of it. There's a massive leap from saying that the government provide something that's a contribution, you know, which might be a reason to think by by parity of reasoning that it's uh, the government is entitled to something, unlike the capitalist, and saying that the government is entitled to take everything. I mean, like what what, what we're considering uh, in the uh, the plain argument and what we're considering, I, I think, in any account of exploitation is what's the capitalist is taking uh, from uh, is is justified uh, the capitalist as a, as opposed to uh, to the worker. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. 
But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Can the objections to the plain argument that we've been discussing also be raised against what Marx wrote in Capital and related works regarding capitalist exploitation? Are there other objections that can be raised against it? Obviously, your answers to these questions will depend on how you interpret what he wrote, and we expect there to be some disagreements about that. So it's likely that we'll be getting into discussion about what Marx wrote, as well as discussions of potential objections to it. Andrew, do you want to answer first? Yeah, my objection to Cohen's plain argument is simple. It's not a valid argument. The argument does not prove that the conclusion is correct given the premises, and that's a fatal flaw since it's a deductive argument. They're supposed to be valid. Okay. In contrast, Marx's argument about exploitation is valid on the basis of a few premises, especially that living labor is the sole source of new value and that capitalists pay workers, pay for workers' labor power rather than their labor. Marx's argument as to why workers are exploited, given those premises, it goes through very easily. Given his premises, he proves his conclusion. The amount of new value created by, and only by, the workers' living labor um, is greater than the amount of value they receive by selling their labor power. The capitalists appropriate the remainder of the new value without paying the workers any equivalent. Hence, the workers are exploited. In other words, they contribute more value to production than they receive in return. Um, but I think it'll be helpful if I explain why and how Marx's exploitation argument succeeds while the plain argument and others like it fail. Um, they actually have a few things in common. Marx's and the others both say that exploitation occurs when people are made to contribute more than they receive in return. Both of them say that workers' labor and it alone makes a particular contribution. And both of them say that workers receive less than they contribute. But there's a crucial difference with respect to what it is that workers labor and it alone contributes. Marx says that the relevant contribution here is the creation of new value. The plain argument of Cohen and others like it try to say that the relevant contribution here is contributing to the creation of physical products, not value. And the plain argument fails, and every similar argument is bound to fail, because workers' labor is simply not the only thing that creates physical products. Non-labor inputs, machines, electricity, are creators of physical products as well in every production process. 
And workers are not the only people who contribute to the creation of physical products. Non-workers, investors, entrepreneurs, governments, and so on, they contribute to the creation of physical products even though they don't directly create them. So the plain argument and similar ones that are just bound to fail because they need to say that workers' labor is the exclusive source of physical products, but that's just definitely not true. So what happens is these arguments either just ignore the other inputs and the other agents, or like the plain argument, they duck and weave with equivocations and clever formulations and distract our attention from the basic facts here. In contrast, Marx's exploitation argument is about something non-physical, the creation of new value, not physical. And there are no obvious facts that immediately disqualify the premise that living labor is the sole source of new value. It may or may not ultimately prove to be correct. And so the exploitation theory that follows from Marx's premise may ultimately be shown to be correct or incorrect. But the argument is valid. The conclusion that workers are exploited by capitalists is unavoidable given this premise and a few less controversial ones. So, make a long story short, can objections be raised against Marx's exploitation theory? Yes, in the sense that lots of people can and do object to the value theory from which it flows. Whether those objections are well-founded, that's another matter. Uh, my view is that if we leave aside the objections that are just plain incorrect, the other objections out there are political and metaphysical. They're not factual, they're not logical. Uh, lots of people recoil from the revolutionary implications of Marx's value theory. And nominalists and empiricists, they recoil from abstract objects and essences like, like value. But such things are not proper bases on which to dismiss scientific theories. They should be evaluated in terms of factual evidence and, and logic. Um, as an example of one of the objections to Marx's uh, value theory that's just plain incorrect, it's there in Cohen's paper uh, to soften us up, make us more receptive to his plain argument that's about to come, he first tries to demolish Marx's own argument as to why capitalists exploit workers. But he commits an either-or fallacy. Cohen says that Marx put forward two versions of what he calls the labor theory of value. He says there's the popular doctrine, there's the strict doctrine. Uh, the popular version's theoretically untenable, it's just crap, while the strict version, according to Cohen, actually implies that labor does not create value. So Marx's exploitation theory, which is based on the idea that labor does create value, well, that goes into the dustbin of history. Or Co so Cohen says. What Cohen calls the popular doctrine says that commodities' values are determined by what's called their historical cost. And the so-called strict doctrine says that their values are determined by what's called their post-production replacement cost. And Cohen presents these as the only possibilities, and he argues that Marx mixed and matched them. But they're not the only possibilities, and actually Marx didn't accept either of them. Uh, as I and others have shown, uh, especially in chapter 6 of my book, Reclaiming Marx's Capital, Marx's actual theory was that a commodity's values is determined by its pre-production reproduction cost. And that's different from both its historical cost and its uh, post-production replacement cost. 
so Marx's actual theory doesn't have the problems that the historical cost popular doctrine has. Uh, but more importantly here, in contrast to Cohen's strict doctrine, the replacement cost version, Marx's actual theory does imply that labor creates value. So Cohen's attempt to demolish Marx's exploitation theory by demolishing his value theory, that simply fails. Okay, just let me say that I have been comparing here Marx's exploitation theory and G.A. Cohen's own plain argument, not Ben's belated attempt to salvage Cohen's conclusion 42 years later by means of a different argument. Cohen's five-line plain argument fails because it's not valid. Its premises are just not sufficient to prove the conclusion that capitalists exploit workers. So, in an attempt to salvage Cohen's conclusion, Ben has put forward a different argument. For instance, he has added his argumentum at David Schweikertum about owners of inputs not being entitled to sell them instead of having them confiscated. And Ben has added his argumentum at Rick Wolfham, uh, the allegation that capitalists are just middlemen who skim profit but do nothing to assist the production process. I have problems with these things he's added and others, and I have problems with something crucial that he's dropped, but my point here is that Ben's additions are just not part of Cohen's own actual argument. You won't find it anywhere in his paper. So Cohen's own plain argument, invalid, dead and gone. And Ben tacitly acknowledges this fact by giving us a supplementary argument, or several, in order to try to reach the same conclusion that Cohen tried to reach. But the fact that the, but the, fact that the conclusions are the same doesn't make their arguments the same. The arguments are different. Uh, in, in the same way, Marx and Cohen both came to the same conclusion. Workers are exploited by capital. But their arguments are different, and Cohen clearly recognized that. Marx's argument was grounded in his value theory. Cohen's argument definitely was not. And again, Marx's argument is valid, while Cohen's uh, is not. So as to the question of uh, whether my argument is different from Cohen's argument uh, because of the points that I brought up from Richard Wolff and David Schweikart, uh, no, I think that's just not right. So uh, the points that I brought up from Wolff and Schweikart were responses to objections to the argument. They're not additions to the argument itself. That's a crucial distinction. So uh, one of the, uh, the premises of the argument is that uh, only workers are creating products, but that response to the objection is not an extra premise of the argument itself. It's just a response to the objection. So the, the objection was about other inputs in the uh, production process, and the point is that none of these are about uh, contributions to the product that are not being made by workers. Uh, they're uh, being made by workers in other firms, they're being made by uh, by workers in the public sector, but they are still being made by workers, and that is the crucial uh, point. I think a uh, a more interesting objection is the one about uh, entrepreneurial risk, although even there, I think the crucial point is about whether labor being organized in a way that goes through firms taking entrepreneurial risk. I think the uh, the crucial point with regard to exploitation is whether that's uh, voluntary or uh, or involuntary. Now, I find it a little bit confusing when Andrew talks about 
uh, Marx's argument being valid, because Marx, of course, does not anywhere uh, spell out here are all the premises of the argument. Here's the you know here are the exact steps. He uh, he makes a bunch of comments. Uh, that require some reconstruction. Now, if Andrew thinks that there is a, uh, a version of that argument that relies on the labor theory of value, uh, that would be a valid argument once we've done all the reconstruction, that's fine. Although I do find it a little ironic and a little odd that he, he's going to put so much emphasis on his preferred reconstruction of, uh, of Marx's argument uh, being, uh, being valid, you know, while saying, well, if you're adding to Cohen's argument, even adding to it in the sense of responding to objections to the premises, then that's just not Cohen's argument anymore. Uh, you don't need to go into value theory. And I think the reason uh, has to do with an interesting tension with between one of the things that Andrew said just now and one of the things that he said on the previous installment. On the previous installment, he said, yes, of course, exploitation is a normative claim. Here, he said, well, all you need to establish exploitation is a gap between uh, what the value that workers are producing and then what they're, they're getting back in uh, wages. And I, I think that there is a really important gap between those two things, right? Because for the difference between what workers are producing and what they're getting back to count as a form of exploitation, which we agreed is a normative concept, then it has to, uh, has to be the case that they, you know, they have a right to all of this value that's that's been produced which in the previous discussion was objected to because like oh now we're bringing in fuzzy moral things to what's supposed to be you know the mere existence of a gap between what's created and what's returned uh, is clearly insufficient to be exploitation in the um, in the normative sense I think one uh, certainly it's uh, I think it's I think in intuitive moral terms it's clearly insufficient. Uh, and certainly in terms of reconstructing Marx's own views, it's insufficient. Uh, even in uh, Andrew's, uh, you know, reconstruction just now, you know, it's, it's not valid because we need an extra premise about how it's exploitative for workers uh, not to get back the entirety of the value they created. Uh, there's a few things I'd like to respond to. Have I reconstructed Marx? Yes, in the sense that, you know, I didn't just repeat his words but what's often called a reconstruction is somebody's free re reconfiguring of what they think the person meant rather than what they actually said. I stand by what I've said. It, it is what Marx said, even though maybe different words are used here or there. But Marx wrote a lot. And my point is that what I have put forward is not me. What I've put forward is Marx. And I, I might be right, I might be wrong. I think I'm definitely right as to what Marx was arguing. Now, let me first get to this issue of the normative implications of the charge of exploitation. What is typically meant by exploitation, and I wrote an encyclopedia entry on the concept of exploitation for the Blackwell Encyclopedia of Sociology. What's typically meant by exploitation is that somebody is made to, involuntarily, contribute more than they receive. Okay? Now, Marx's argument does, Cohen's argument tries to show that that's the case. Okay? Now, whether that's the case or not is, is purely dependent on facts. There's no moral issue concerning the facts. Where the moral issue comes is the labeling of this as exploitation. So you could say the workers get less than, than they contribute, and you could be happy with that. 
and you wouldn't want to call it exploitation. Other, others of us are not happy with that, and we do call it exploitation. But you don't need the moral premise to have the charge of exploitation if you've defined that this is what you mean by exploitation. If this is what we mean by exploitation, then the facts of the case determine whether the relation is exploitative or not. End of story. Now, Ben was really interesting in the way he responded to this issue of what's in Cohen's argument and what his, he supplemented. He says, well, what he's done is provide a response to the objections. But there's a response to the objections of the type that clarifies what's there in the original statement. And then there's a response to the objection that tries to plug up holes in the original argument when they've been found. What Ben has done is to give us the second one. What he has done is not purely to explicate the meaning of the terms in the five lines of Cohen's plain argument. Well, I mean, I think you're just you're just getting wrong what I'm doing, and it's also a false dilemma. You're saying that the uh, the ways that you can respond to an objection are by trying to clarify what the person meant, and uh, or by trying to uh, ch- you know by presenting a revised version of to what they meant. But not all responses to objections need to take either of those forms. You could just say, "Look, uh, here is a premise. Here is a reason that this person is giving to think this premise is wrong." which might even be a reason that the original person making the argument had never thought of, or it might be whatever. But then like the next question is to consider whether that reason is right. And if it's wrong, if the response shows that the the original objection is just misguided, it doesn't matter uh, whether it was in the head of the person who originally made the argument that this possible objection could be raised or how it could be answered. Okay, first of all, what I did not do is what you're saying I'm doing, which is misinterpreting the premises. If you were clarifying the premises... Well, I'm not saying you're misinterpreting the premises. I'm saying that you're giving a reason to think the premise is wrong, but that reason is misguided. I'm not objecting to the premises at all. That's why I'm not just saying it's an unsound argument. I'm saying it's an invalid argument. The, The premises, which I do accept in Cohen's argument, are not sufficient to... Allow us to derive the conclusion that workers are exploited. Okay? And that logic cannot be repaired by giving us supplementary, you know, argumentum. Well, well, because I don't know what you're talking about. Because the only objection I heard last time to the logic of it was that there was slightly different wording used. And as I pointed out several times, you know, the exact same wording could be used in both premises and it wouldn't change anything. Yeah, it wouldn't change anything because there's still an equivocation. What's the equivocation? The equivocation is that although workers are the only people who create the product in the sense that Cohen has defined, there are other inputs that are creators. Okay, in addition, there is the issue that Cohen slips. He gives us in his uh, definition of exploitation the idea of obtaining something or somebody contributing something. And most kinds of contributions then magically disappear in the course of this argument until we're focused solely on this issue of direct creation. Okay? There are two logical errors here. And but the point that I've been trying to make now is that the reason that you get these logical errors is there's a lot of fancy footwork and the fancy footwork is there to avoid letting us recognize the simple fact that workers, their labor is not the only input that creates physical products, and workers are not the only agents 
you know, there are investors, there are entrepreneurs, there are governments, there are other agents who contribute to the production process. Well, that certainly sounds like a uh, response, uh, an objection to the premise, uh, step 17 there, the labor is the only person who creates the product, uh, because... No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. no investors I, I, aren't I people? I accept that. I mean, I, I don't understand. Investors are people. They don't create the product in the sense that Cohen has defined it. They, they contribute to the production process, but they, they are not creators of the product. Uh, then, uh, then yeah, there are, you know, like there are other inputs uh, that... Uh, uh, that are relevant, but uh, but those other inputs aren't an example of things being done by other people uh, to contribute to uh, creating the, the product uh, that aren't done by workers. Uh, those things are done by other groups of workers. The sellers of the inputs make a contribution, okay, and they are compensated for that contribution, okay? And so are you proposing that they be exploited or are you saying it's not exploited in any case this is not anywhere in cohen's argument well again it's not anywhere in cohen's argument because it's it's an objection to the claim that the laborer is the only person who contributes to the creation of the product we can put it that way uh, right and that's not and, and cohen does not make that argument okay there that's not one of cohen's premises and if he had made that argument, it would be a better argument. I don't know. Okay, but if if that's how he had begun, okay, yeah. he would have I, I been on much more solid ground. I would say that the standards that you're using to say that everything you say is in Marx uh, for uh, the Cohen, uh, we'd be having a very different discussion. Because if uh, if the difference between creates and contributes to creating, you know, is one that's 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 crucial here. I mean, I think that's I think that's going to be. It, it, it's absolutely crucial, and Cohen himself brings it up. Okay, he says to act productively, it's enough that one does something which helps to bring it about that a thing is produced, and that does not entail participating in producing it. Okay, the distinction is between productive activities and producing activities. Capitalists arguably engage in the former, but once the distinction is clear, it is evident that they do not engage in the latter. To be sure, if the capitalist is a productive non-producer, that will have a bearing on the thesis that he is an exploiter. It will be a challenge to a charge of exploitation whose premise is that he produces nothing. But it would be wrong to direct the challenge against the premise of that charge that he produces nothing. As this is generally intended, it cannot be denied. So Cohen has made this distinction between the productive kind of or producing whatever activity that the capitalists do engage in and what he's saying that the worker is the only one who does. And in my book here, this is on page 219, it's uh, near the end of section 8 of Cohen's article. I don't think that you need any sort of normative premise here about whether under capitalism, um, you know, sellers of inputs should be compensated, because I don't think that's going to be relevant to the argument or to the charge of, uh, of, of exploitation. Sure, if we're talking about the kind of fairness that we have under capitalism, there should be. But the point is, who creates uh products maybe there could be a better version of the line of argument you know of objection you've been making uh if if you really sort you know you you do more work to sort out the distinction uh that you you think is is relevant here and what kind of non-productive non-productive producers it is uh but i think that the uh the question should be uh, you know, if the, the objection is that you need inputs to create products, those inputs are themselves being created by workers. 
Uh, and I think once you look at that bigger picture, it remains true that workers are the ones who are uh, who are creating uh, the uh, the products, and uh, and that you know you don't have non-workers in any position such that it's legitimate for for them to slice off some of the value of of what's created given that all of the creation direct and indirect been done by workers and you won't find that anywhere in Cohen's paper so it's a supplementary argument so it's, it's not a supplementary argument it's a response it's a response to uh, it's a response to a, uh, to uh, to an objection the guy you know you say Cohen says the laborer is the only person who creates the product and we're saying oh but that's not true because also you know no no I, I no I accept the, that premise. Okay, but you think that the uh, but you know the you you, I think so. I think the distinction that you're trying to make here uh, between saying the labor is the only person who creates the product, and then there are other there are other people who are um, uh, who who are contributing to the creation of a product in such a way that uh, that they uh, that they deserve to uh, to to be uh, to be compensated. I don't think that much can be uh, can be rested on uh, on that uh, on that distinction. The, uh, so because um, if um, I mean if we we redo uh, the, uh, the the premise as uh, the you know labor is uh, is the the only person who directly or indirectly uh, creates the uh, creates the product. Uh, then uh, that would uh, that would remain true. I think there I think there's a lot of equivocation about uh, in in your objection about what it is, uh, how much you know, what kind of uh, productive uh, contribution would actually be relevant to the claim of exploitation. And also notice that in this entire discussion, uh, other than my initial objection to it, we've just been letting stand the idea that uh, creating value. Uh, makes uh, makes all subtractions of uh, of value uh, exploitative uh, in the uh, in the sense uh, that the uh, that um, that the you know moral term exploitation would be a reasonable way to uh, to create the gap. Uh, but we could uh, but every single strategy you're using to undermine the plain argument could also be used to undermine that, which you claim but you haven't shown. And well, I don't accept. I, I don't. Okay, well, I, I, well, heard, well, you, I haven't you, heard an argument. I'm sorry to sound. I'm sorry to sound like with one no of those defense logic or argument whatsoever. Heard that the uh, that creating value means that any subtraction of the value uh, is uh, is is exploitative. You haven't given us any reason to think that. I, I haven't said that. I haven't said that any subtraction of value is exploitative. Okay, so. If you don't, if you haven't said that, then you haven't given an alternative argument for the claim that workers are exploited under capitalism, because the conclusion of your argument, uh, which you which you equated to exploitation, uh, was that uh, was that workers are the source of value and they're not getting all of that value uh, value back. So either that itself adds up to exploitation or it doesn't. If it doesn't, then you haven't given us an argument yet uh, for thinking that this count that uh, that workers are uh, are exploited, uh, starting from the labor theory of value, uh, and um, and if uh, if it does. Then the question, which I've given some reasons to undermine, you haven't given any reasons to believe, is why should we believe the implicit premise that uh, that um, 
creating uh, being uh, the only creators of value means that you're entitled uh, to uh, to uh, to all of the value. What about other? No, uh, nobody you know, nobody has said. Nobody, at least I haven't, that the workers are entitled to all the value. Marx said the opposite. We okay, but they, uh, that. but but that the but that the capitalist is not entitled to any of the value. Nobody said that either. Marx okay, said well, that, if, if, if Marx you, said if that the product is the legitimate. Marx said that the surplus value is the legitimate property of the capitalist. We we went through this, you know, before. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So thank you, Ben, for joining us for the podcast. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Ben. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies.